0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Somebody
1: said something about they were glad to hear us swear because they had like a running. Day <laughs> on
0: who was going to curse first? Who was
1: going to curse first? So.
0: Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals.
2: Hey, everybody! This is Chris Webster, co-founder of the Archaeology Podcast Network, and today we are running an encore presentation of the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. Sarah's at a conference and couldn't record an episode, so we're going to run this one from the past. It's episode 14. It was originally titled Jason Colavito and Ancient Aliens. On this episode, Sarah and Ken Fader interview skeptical xenoarchaeologist Jason Colavito. They talk to Jason about his work of exploring the connections between science, pseudoscience, and speculative fiction. So check this out and head over to arcpodnet.com forward slash archiefantasies to find new episodes.
1: Maybe. Welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and my co-host, Ken Fader.
0: How we doing? How you doing? How's the weather? The weather here is getting a little bit better. I have this horrible cold, so listeners of the podcast would be relieved that I'm going to have to shut up a lot. You know, for once, I won't be uh, talking as much as I usually do.
1: Actually, I do hear it this time. Your, your voice is a little gravel. Oh, yeah. No, it's, well, I had it's a cold good. last time, so that works out. It's all right. You caught my cold through the internet.
0: That can happen. It was a virus, obviously. (laughs) There you go.
1: (laughs) Sent me email. And today we are interviewing our very special guest, Jason Pavelito.
0: Hello, how
3: are you? Hi Jason. How are you? I'm doing well. Excellent.
1: Jason is a blogger of many talents, as well as an exceptional horror writer, and probably one of the most famous debunkers on the internet when it comes to pseudo-archaeology.
0: Jason, very few people use the word polymath anymore, but I think Jason's a real polymath. I I think that actually is is
1: a pretty good descriptor of Yeah, I mean, he
0: just has an enormous uh, number of skills, research. And the fact that he debunks things is is part of that. But it's just it's his research skills that I think all of us are, are enormously impressed by. Yeah, it's not so. just
1: the way, Jason, that you debunk things. It's how you do it. You do a very research centered debunking like you, you, you use not just the Oh, anyone could see that this is wrong. You actually try to like show people why it is wrong and you like to link people to ways that they can go and see how they are wrong. Can you give us a little bit of background on how you got into, well, how you became a horror writer for starts, because I find that fascinating, and how you went from there to being a archaeology,
3: pseudo archaeology debunker? Well, I am glad that you are impressed by my horror writing, but that is a very, very minor uh, sidelight. I've only uh, published a few horror stories professionally. More of what I do in the horror field is horror scholarship. I've written a couple of books in which I examine the history of the horror genre, and that was really one of the entry points that I had into the world of pseudo-archaeology and crazy theories, because horror stories involve a lot of those same elements, ancient mysteries, monsters, things that go bump in the night. And they're the same things that you also find in a lot of the archaeological fantasies. fantasies. You hear about the, the buried secrets and lost tombs and all of that sort of thing. So there's a real natural connection between the horror genre and archaeology. And one of the key uh, ways that I've crossed over between fiction and into the realm of pseudoscience is through the work of H.P. Lovecraft, who was a horror writer in the 1920s and 30s who used a lot of archaeological themes in his work and also wrote about ancient astronauts, about space aliens who are responsible for building ancient structures and who created ancient myths and legends to glorify So H.P. Lovecraft's fiction was really sort of gateway that led me to some of the nonfiction versions of the same ideas, you know, Eric Von Donegan's Chariots of the Gods and all of that, and one of the reasons for that was that My father was a huge fan of Eric Von Donegan back in the 1970s, and some of Eric Von Donegan's books were laying around the house when I was a kid, and uh, I read them. And though I may not be proud of it today, um, when I was a teenager, I was incredibly impressed by them and was a full-throated ancient astronaut theorist for a few years there until i started to learn more about archaeology when i studied anthropology and archaeology in college and that's where it all sort of fell apart for me because when you start learning about actual facts and then start comparing it to what some of the practitioners of fringe archaeology have to say you start to see that it doesn't exactly match and that's really the uh place where I entered into the fringe world and came to recognize what was wrong with it and decided that maybe I had something to say about what went wrong and why.
1: So when you said that you were a full-throated believer, did you
3: participate in any kind of groups or anything supporting Von Daniken's theories? Well, this is going back a long time now. I think I was 13 or 14 at the time, but I was a member of what was uh, then Eric Von Donegan's Ancient Astronaut Society for a few years there. I didn't go to conferences or anything. This was the 1990s when the ancient astronaut theory wasn't nearly as popular as it is today. It was sort of in its nadir between its heyday in the 70s and its renaissance over the last six years. But, uh, you know, I got the newsletter and uh, was part of the club for a while there.
1: That's actually kind of interesting. So I know that you studied archaeology and anthropology when you were in school. And when it finally clicked for you that the ancient astronauts theory was junk... Was that a hard revelation
3: for you? Or or were you kind of like, ah, finally, this all makes sense? No, it wasn't really a a hard revelation. It was sort of a gradual accretion of fact. I was already prepared to realize what went wrong before I actually recognized it. It kind of started with moving from Eric Von Donegan's ancient astronaut theory to what was then the really popular lost civilization theory of Graham Hancock. Mm. And Graham Hancock talks in his book, Fingerprints of the Gods, about Why von Däniken's space aliens theory isn't isn't right. You don't need space aliens to understand these ancient civilizations because this Atlantis like civilization could explain it equally well. Right. So at the time I was thinking, okay, yeah, sure. So we don't really need the space aliens. So let's go for Atlantis instead. So when I also learned that the law theory kind of lacked a firm foundation too, it really wasn't as dramatic as if my entire worldview were suddenly collapsing (laughs) because, you know, it's been a sort of step, it was a step-by-step process. Well, you don't need the aliens, so now we have Atlantis. Well, okay, well, maybe we don't actually need Atlantis either. And it isn't as dramatic as going from aliens to nothing as when you step down one by one. Sure.
0: Sure.
3: Yeah, Yeah. good point. But keep in mind, I was a teenager at the time, so you know.
0: (laughs) Well, it is funny how many archaeologists and historians you talk to these days who are are in the skeptical community, but who began as teenagers embracing these ideas, and it was it was the hook that got them interested. But then, you know, they they saw the problems. In the, the the underpinning data that was being used to to boost these things up. Now, one of the we, one of Jason's books that we really need to put a link on the the webpage for is he's, he's talking about H.P. Lovecraft. And the, the the my first encounter with Jason was his book, The Cult of Alien Gods: H.P. Lovecraft and Extraterrestrial Pop Culture. I've got my copy right here. <laughs> um, but you know, Jason, I think a lot of folks who are familiar with, for example. Giorgio Tsoukalos. And maybe they realize, well, he he is the modern purveyor of ancient astronauts, but that he stands on the shoulders of the giant Eric Von Donneken. But I think a lot of folks assume that it all starts with Von Donneken. But I think what you show in this book and what you've shown a lot in your blog is that, well, that's nonsense, that Von Donneken, that his work is based on stuff that precedes him by decades. Could you maybe for for those of us who are not as familiar with Lovecraft as we really ought to be, what where is what's in Lovecraft that you think von Donikin? Use what what's there that he used to uh, to claim that this no it's not fiction it's real stuff. Well, that's an enormously complicated question. Well, exactly,
3: there have been, <laughs> been so many different versions of the ancient astronaut theory over the years. It all starts more or less with theosophy, the um, kind of occult belief system in the 19th century that. Posited that uh, human civilization originated on lost continents, but that it was the result of influence from what they didn't call space aliens, but were pretty much space aliens. They were spirit beings that lived on Venus and Mars and the Moon and came to Earth in flying ships. So you know, space (laughs) aliens. There you go. Exactly. (laughs) But uh, theosophy was enormously influential, and one of the ways that it was influential was on fiction. And you find in the work of H.P. Lovecraft. He took a lot of these theosophical ideas, and he worked them into a much more dramatic and, dare we say, coherent version than the theosophists ever did, and also simplified their enormously complicated theology. So in Lovecraft's fiction, we have what's called the Cthulhu mythos about these space aliens, um, the most famous of which is the octopus-headed alien god Cthulhu, and they come to Earth in the distant past. These space aliens are responsible for building large stone temples, for instituting religion, for creating um, statues of themselves, and even for creating humanity itself to uh, serve them. And these are all themes that you find repeated later in ancient astronaut literature. Now, Eric Von Donegan has said that he's never read H.P. Lovecraft and he doesn't know anything about H.P. Lovecraft. Uh But, Eric von Donnegan got a lot of his ideas from the French writer, and I'll try to pronounce it right, Robert Cheru, Um right. and also the uh, writers Jacques Bergier and Louis Pauls in their famous book *Morning of the Magicians*. Yeah, and Jacques Bergier he was a huge Lovecraft fan. Okay. He he uh, claimed. Later in life, that he was a correspondent of Lovecraft and had written him letters and they talked about ancient astronauts and all of that sort of thing. There's no proof that that ever happened, but there are letters that exist that were published in Weird Tales magazine from uh, Jacques Bergier around the time of Lovecraft's death, in which Bergier talks about how much he loved Lovecraft In, in the 1930s. This was, of course... Uh, quite the accomplishment because Lovecraft was writing in the United States and Bergier was living in France so we had to go to the international bookstore and get copies of Weird Tales that were being shipped over from the United States so when you're talking about being a dedicated fan that was fandom back then Sure. Yeah. and Bergier he was incredibly impressed by Lovecraft's vision and in all of Bergier's later fringe history works from Morning of the Magicians to um, the other one Big one is extraterrestrial visitation in prehistoric times. You see references to H.P. Lovecraft. He's listed by name in both of those books. Okay. And uh, Bergier takes over a lot of Lovecraft's ideas. And Bergier starts to think that what if these are true? So he does research, we'll call it. He um, goes back to Lovecraft sources, especially Theosophy and all the crazy ideas of the 19th century. And he brings these into his books. And he uh, also combines that with UFO research that's going on in the 1950s especially Soviet research that starts to look into the UFO phenomenon and whether UFOs could be traced back to ancient times. The Soviets were very interested in trying to debunk religion in those years. So one of the things they tried to do was to say, okay, well, the Bible's full of all these miracles, but it wasn't God. It was space aliens. Mm -hmm. See, they're all materialist explanations. You have to believe now. So Bergier takes that and he infuses it with the sort of Quasi-spirituality of Lovecraft's fake religion of ancient astronauts. Now, Lovecraft, being a materialist and an atheist, he didn't expect anyone to actually believe this stuff was true, but uh, Bergier, he was well, he was more of a mystical, mystic, and he was very much into the idea that this stuff could really have a spiritual basis, uh, you know, in the cosmos, and maybe these aliens are true. So he puts all of this in Paul's Morning of the Magicians. And Eric Von Doniken, he, we don't want to say anything legally, uh, but he lifts a lot of the ideas and a lot of the evidence from *Morning of the Magicians and from another book inspired by *Morning of the Magicians, the ones written by uh, Robert Sheru. And von Donneken, therefore, ends up influenced indirectly by Lovecraft through these works. Gotcha. And uh, Robert Sheru, actually, he complained to... Von Donegan's publisher shortly after Chariots of the Gods was published and said, you know, he stole from me. And Von Donegan's publisher actually had to go and put Sheru and Bergier and Pauls into the bibliography of future editions of Chariots of the Gods to help make uh, Sheru go away and avoid suing him. So that's how it all ended up there.
0: I have an old version of Chariots of the Gods and there's no mention of Morning of the Magicians or Cheru. So yeah, clearly that they, they applied enough pressure to make them put the name in, which is very interesting. But all of this, Lovecraft is certainly not saying that anything he's putting in his fiction is based in reality. So it's it's bizarre that somebody reads a clearly a work of fiction and decides, well maybe there's actually some truth behind this. Well, what's
3: really interesting is that that was the case even before there was a modern ancient astronaut theory. As early as the 1920s when Lovecraft was first writing his stories, people were writing into weird tales asking, is this stuff true? <laughs> and they were like, where can I read these books about Cthulhu and where can I get more information about this and it it shocked lovecraft that people were thinking this stuff was true in fact uh, lovecraft ended up becoming friends with the um weird writer um robert e howard the creator of conan the barbarian okay uh because howard had written to lovecraft well to weird tales and said is this stuff true i where can i find out more about this and Lovecraft was, you know, it's not true, and they ended up bonding over this, and Howard ended up incorporating some of the elements of Lovecraft into his fiction, okay. and that's one of the reasons people started to believe Lovecraft's stories had a basis in fact, because Lovecraft shared his ideas with his friends, uh-huh. so other writers like Clark Ashton Smith and like Robert Bloch ended up incorporating elements of the Cthulhu mythos into their stories. So they were writing about references to alien gods in their stories. So essentially what you had was a sort of shared fictional world, but one that was produced with all of the elements of a hoax, as Lovecraft put it, to the point that – many readers started to think that if so many different writers were referring to the same thing, that they must be drawing on an actual, real source, rather than just sharing with each other their ideas.
1: Well, in all honesty, that's not a bad assumption, it just unfortunately in this situation wasn't
0: correct. Well, it certainly is not the only time that I've heard people on the fringe say that some element of science fiction is in fact the government's effort to kind of get us used to the idea that there are guys in outer space are are hovering around the earth. I mean I even heard somebody claim that the Star Wars movies – we're actually based in fact, but it's just this this fictional way of calming us down so we get used to the idea and then they're gonna spring it on us that well, in fact there really is a Luke Skywalker and uh, these, these are these are actually based on on um, historical documents or whatever. So all
1: I just heard is that someday I could be a Jedi. so well there you go. I'm, yes. I'm perfectly okay with this now.
0: These are not you know, the droids you're looking for.
3: <laughs> you know what's what's interesting is that that kind of confusion between fiction and fact goes back a long way. In The Secret Doctrine, Helena Blavatsky, the founder of Theosophy, yes. actually wrote about how she thought that science fiction writers were getting psychic messages from the spirit realm so that their fiction was actually channeling <coughs> spiritual realities about you know space aliens and magic powers and what right. have yeah. you. So <laughs> i kind of saying that fiction is fact and people have followed that idea ever since. Huh. You know, there are people who actually believe that uh, Lovecraft's deities are not just real, but that you can use magic powers to communicate with them. There's a whole field called Lovecraftian magic and that's yep. spelled with a CK at the end, in which people yes. conduct rituals and rites in order to try to contact Cthulhu and the, the alien gods and have them I guess perform tricks. I don't really know what you do when you, can, when you contact an alien god.
1: You know, funny you should mention that because when I was younger and running around with my role playing groups that I used to and still do play with, actually, there were a few individuals who were really into Lovecraft and that was their chosen path of paganism was the, the Lovecraftian branch of that, which that actually is what got me reading Lovecraft because I was like, well, what's this? And I was like, this is not real. And why would you want it to be? <laughs>
3: Well, there's where you get the interesting connection to what's known as the Simon Necronomicon. Uh
1: Uh-huh.
3: Now, in Lovecraftian fiction, Lovecraft uh, made up this book called The Necronomicon, which is right. the secret tome that has all the secrets about the alien gods in it. Right. And in the 1970s, this uh, guy who called himself Simon, now there have been various speculations about who he really was, but the uh, although there's a pretty good guess of who he is, uh, he never actually confirmed, I won't use his name here. But he presented this book that he claimed was the true Necronomicon, and in order to fabricate it. What he did was he took genuine, well, more or less genuine Mesopotamian texts and substituted Cthulhu mythos names for the Mesopotamian gods' names. Ah. That's one way to do it. You have yet another layer where the Cthulhu mythos is kind of cross-boundary between fact and fiction. So you have this connection to the Mesopotamian gods. And what's interesting about that is that this was happening at the same time that the ancient astronaut writers, like Zachariah Sitchin, were taking those same Mesopotamian gods and claiming that they were really space aliens. Right. So you have this kind of triangle of connections where you have reality, Lovecraftian fiction, and then ancient astronaut pseudoscience, and it's all on a merry-go-round going around in circles. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store, and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
1: So that's interesting that there was that overlap, and I like seeing how... I don't know, I like watching these things evolve. I think it's it's fun watching things go from being completely made up to becoming accepted fact
0: in certain circles. It's, like, increasingly insane, though, from one perspective.
3: Well, yeah, it, it does get a little crazy, but, I mean, yeah, it gets crazy. Never mind. Now, well, Jason, the thing that happened decades later, it, oh, I was going to say, in the 1990s with the Stargate movie... Right, and yeah. Just, you know the ancient aliens, and okay, you have a gate that the portal they come through, and that Stargate ended up becoming accepted as part of ancient alien lore, even though it was completely made up for a movie. Yeah, I hear about <laughs> Stargates all the time. Yeah, like of course. Yep. Yeah. You know they made it up for a movie, yeah. and now suddenly there it is. It's part of ancient alien lore, and they even call it by that name, the Stargate. They didn't even come up with their own name for yeah. it.
1: Yeah, I think they've actually mentioned Stargates on the Ancient Aliens television show a few times, like the the whole alien is a That's real yeah. show. And I, it always makes me kind of giggle because I've never heard the term Stargate before, but now it's everywhere, both in science fiction with the the people who enjoy that kind of stuff as just
3: kind of fiction and as well as people who believe that there and are. I had a, I had a conversation with a, uh, a writer who's doing a book about the history of UFOs. And he asked me if I knew of any earlier reference to the Stargate before the movie. And together we looked and did a literature search and we couldn't find any Anything that was even remotely similar, you know, yeah. di- dimensional portals or anything like that, nothing before the movie. And then right after the movie, suddenly it's in the fringe literature. There's <laughs> stargates everywhere. <laughs> It's interesting
1: that there's not even mention of something that could be recognized as a Stargate prior. There might be,
0: but we weren't able to find one. Right. <laughs> Listen, I can categorically say it. Science fiction writers are going to have to start trademarking every term right. they invent. Or some some fringe writer is going to appropriate it and claim that, well, it's a real thing.
1: Well, just think that could be a boon as a writer, though, because you could then collect royalties on <laughs> yeah, that as well as your book. So, Oh,
0: my God. Now... <laughs> Hey Jason, is it fair to say that look, when I when I was a kid reading Eric Von and reading *Chariots of the Gods*, *Gold of the Gods*, that the primary thing that got me interested was the the hardware—that these were nuts and bolts spacecraft, that these were actual extraterrestrial aliens who had visited the Earth in the past. But there's there's always been this this mystical, almost religious undercurrent, and I, is it fair to say that that is that's kind of becoming the dominant theme? In ancient astronaut literature now? I would say that's more than fair. Um, yeah.
3: one, Eric Von Doniken when he started he was very clear about this isn't some kind of just renaming the gods this, these are nuts and bolts flying saucers okay. these are actual flesh and blood space aliens mm-hmm. but as time went on other uh, fringe writers kind of modified that and I think one of the reasons for that is frankly archaeologists, journalists and skeptics who have been chipping away at the ancient astronaut theory for decades that you know the more that the pieces of hard evidence keep falling away, the more you have to turn toward less physical proofs of your aliens, Uh things that can't be debunked as easily. Yeah. Because, you know, on the one hand, it's easy enough to say, well, you said X, but the facts say Y. On the other hand, if you say, well, it's really a spiritual influence from another dimension that sent (laughs) through psychic (laughs) mind. Right beams. You disprove that. You can't. That's more of a, it's a philosophy rather than evidence. But on ancient aliens especially, you see that the modern ancient astronaut theorists really have this very spiritual view of things. People like David Wilcock and uh, William Henry, they're always talking about how these uh, beings from other dimensions are beaming thoughts into your head, and that's really how the aliens are doing it. But one of the themes that I've written about is how this kind of collapses the category of alien, angel, and D kind of melds together so that there really is no longer a functional difference between extraterrestrial being and divinity. So what you're seeing is less a an examination of evidence for flesh and blood extraterrestrials and more of a sort of neo-paganism where you're trying to find a quasi-scientific reason to believe in the pagan gods.
1: Mm-hmm. That's interesting, yeah. Well, Jeb, kind of, Jeb Carr that we had on earlier pointed out a very similar revelation there about how the ancient astronauts and the ancient alien theorists are, I guess, de-evolving back into the more spiritual, less physical... Right. Incarnations of the aliens. Like, it's not that they are literally people or beings that can come in and touch and feel, but that they are energies or. Um, dream beings or right. things that can only be intangible, and it and you can't you can't disprove a negative at that point, you know.
0: But you know you're seeing a similar thing happening with the search for Bigfoot and Sasquatch. Yeah, where there's a, there's a, 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 a an element in that community that talks about not uh, a, a remnant population of bipedal hominids, but you're talking about spiritual entities, right. shapeshifters, uh, transdimensional beings.
3: They can teleport and stuff and ride in flying saucers. Yeah, yes. they get they get a little crazy. Yeah, and of course yeah. that they're also a Nephilim, one of the fallen right.
0: angels and the giants from the Bible.
3: Yeah. Well we just had the
1: giants discussion too and it's the same kind of thing.
0: Hey Jason, when yes. when ancient aliens started on the air, I was surprised because I was naive that they, they didn't call it ancient astronauts because that was the term that had been used for decades. Mm. Is it your opinion that the ancient aliens using that, that was merely because they wanted a different brand? Or is there something deeper here that they're really not just talking about astronauts?
3: I am not privy to their internal concerns, but <laughs> I don't, think... They don't email that, you on a regular basis. I think that there are two reasons that they went with the name Ancient Aliens. Uh, the first is that ancient astronauts sounds kind of dated. In 2009, when this started, we weren't really talking a whole lot about astronauts anymore. Right. You know, the shuttle program was... I don't remember if it had already ended or if it was winding down. But, you know, astronauts were... More or less, you know, kind of passe at that point. Right. Okay. So branding it as ancient aliens sounds more <clears throat> modern. And from a purely business perspective, Ancient astronauts is a generic term that's been used for decades, you can't copyright or trademark it. Ancient aliens is something new, they can and they did trademark it. So in fact, A&E Networks, the parent company of the History Channel and H2 that shows ancient aliens, they're actually a line of clothing branded with ancient aliens now. They just announced that a few weeks ago. So you too can now have your own ancient aliens, and I believe it was uh, pajamas, jackets, um, (laughs) and activewear. (laughs)
1: So, <laughs> well, we were just talking about creating merchandise. So maybe we need to get on that so we can have the anti-ancient aliens yeah. merchandise out beyond
0: outfit. beyond your books, Jason. You need merch, man. You need like <laughs> you need t-shirts with your picture on the on uh, the front. Oh, absolutely, that's what. Yeah, i be a
3: very very uh, low sales there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you do have a very nice blog, though. You could just take some of your icons and stick them on a t-shirt, and they are you're good to go.
0: I guess. Anyway, so now, by no small coincidence, and maybe you'd like to talk about this, Jason, about an hour before we started the podcast, taping the podcast, I got – I received from Amazon.com my copy of uh, your latest book, Foundations of Atlantis, Ancient Astronauts, and Other Alternative Pasts. Oh, that's um, you edited this. Now, can, can yes. you talk a little bit about this book because I think this is an incredible resource for anybody interested in the history of this, topic Well,
3: Foundations of Atlantis is kind of an accidental book that I wasn't really planning on putting together. But um, it all started (laughs) a few years ago when Giorgio Tsoukalos from (laughs) Ancient Aliens had a tweet when somebody asked him, where do you get this idea that the aliens helped the Egyptians build the pyramids? And he said, well, I got it out of uh, an an Arab writer named Al-Macrizi's book, The Al-Kitat. And I said – well, okay, so where does it say that? And that's where I sort of got the idea that maybe it would be a good idea to look back at the ancient texts that these people are citing to try to figure out whether they say what they say they say. And to make a very long story somewhat shorter, the Al Kitat was written in Arabic in the uh, 1400s. And my first thought was, of course, 1400 AD. You know, that's. Yeah, almost uh, four thousand years after the pyramids were built. Uh What do they know about? But um, it turns out that it's never been translated into English. So one of the things that ancient astronaut writers like to do is to cite things that haven't been translated into easily accessible (gasps) languages because, you know, you can't look things up. Right. So it turns out that there was a French translation that was commissioned in the 19th century. And I was able to use that and translate the passages from the text and discover that there's nothing at all in there about space aliens (laughs) and nothing at all in there about aliens helping anyone to build the pyramids. In fact, it says something very different. So based on that, I started collecting more of the ancient texts that were cited in these books. And as I looked at them, including texts that have already been translated and ones that have never been translated and that I've had to actually render into English myself to figure out what they say. I learned over and over again that these people are misrepresenting the stuff. Yeah. And it's not just matters of interpretation. In many cases, it's just flat out wrong. <laughs> they're twisting things. They're right. making up whole texts out of nothing. Uh, a very famous uh, case is the so-called nuclear explosion that occurs in the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata. Um, and the text there... That's presented in all these ancient astronaut books and in lost civilization books like those of David Hatcher Childress. The text is sort of true, but not really. They've actually combined lines from all over the Mahabharata, reorganized them in a different order, and then took the Took them and sort of changed some of the words here and there, and you have only several different myths. And voila, now you have a nuclear explosion followed by radioactive fallout. Uh, Is yeah. just bizarre the way that they do this. And for quite a few of these texts, they are able to get away with it because no one has ever looked back at the originals and in many cases they don't even know the originals they're just copying from people who copied from people who screwed up the translation 150 or 200 years ago so it's really been enlightening to go through all of these materials and to collect them and what I've done is to put them all together in this book called Foundations of Atlantis which presents uh, texts not only that I've translated but also translations that have been published over the last several hundred years of all sorts of things that fringe writers talk about, uh, texts from the Bible, texts about Atlantis, texts about the lost white races of the Americas, all, all sorts of things. So you can see exactly where they get their information from and judge for yourself whether you feel that they're interpreting it correctly. And for each of the texts, I've gone through and um, amended and corrected the translations and provide a running commentary in which I discuss not just the standard interpretations of these texts, but also how fringe writers have used and abused them with their own ideas.
0: Yeah, it's it's absolutely, I've thumbed through it before we began, and it is a marvelous resource. And it's one that anybody who talks about this stuff should get themselves a copy of that book because it, it's something that people forget when people, especially people in the English-speaking world, are reading these ancient texts in English, and I think they forget that there there are all these filters between what you are reading in English and what the original authors actually said. We forget that, and so we read it in English and assume, well, that's got to be exactly what was intended, that's the exact meaning, when in fact, as Jason shows very clearly, and in a bunch of your recent blog uh, blog posts as well, you show how very badly mistranslated these things end up in the fringe literature.
3: Oh, their translations are absolutely terrible. In many cases, they just, they bear only a passing resemblance to the originals. And sometimes that's accidental because they just don't know the languages they're trying to translate. Right. And in other cases, I think it must have been on purpose because there's no other way that you can screw things, things up so badly to you know, insert flying saucers and space aliens into places where they just aren't.
0: Well, didn't did you say in one of your recent, I think it's in a recent blog post, maybe it's in the book, that, that one of these fringe authors off- just simply used the Google Translate to try to translate some ancient <laughs> text, wow. which is actually pretty funny. Wow. That's Scott, Scott F. Walter um, right, from right. America
3: I, on Earth. I figure you'd bring him up. Yes, he um, said that he used Google Translate to try to translate the text on the Tucson-led artifacts, uh, the Latin and Hebrew right. texts that supposedly talk about how a uh, group of Jewish and Romans um, came to the Americas in the early Middle Ages.
1: Was that and, because you know, he couldn't find an actual authority who would translate them for him?
3: Uh, that's be- well, if you ask him, the reason is that he felt that the text wasn't him because once he had established his satisfaction that the artifacts were genuinely medieval, right. that what they said really didn't matter. <laughs>
1: I, I notice he does that a lot. He, he decides that something is authentic and, and there's really nothing else you can point out to him that will change his mind. And he finds he he declares things authentic in weird ways, ways I would not use as a
3: professional. Well, Walter comes from, for those of you those listening who don't know much about Scott Walter, he had geological background and he works as a professional geologist. So he tends to rely very heavily on what he sees as geological methods of dating. And essentially he's, you know, doing relative dating. He can say that uh, this is older than this and younger than that. and he sort of establishes something as a very wide possible date range and then declares that that means that it um, falls into his preferred date range. One of the uh, examples of that is the Bat Creek Stone, yeah. which everybody knows was unearthed in the uh, late 19th century and Walter had a chance to examine it recently, and there's a scratch mark on it that was made sometime after the stone was dug up. So using the scratch mark and comparing it to the inscription on the stone, he was able to determine that the stone was made sometime between 500 A.D. I'm ballparking here. I don't have the exact number right. on hand. Right. Somewhere between 500 A.D. and when that scratch was made in the 1970s. Well, okay. so he says that that means that the stone must be genuine because the genuine the dates for it being a genuine um, early medieval late antique artifact fall within his date range. Well, yes, but so do the dates for a hoax because the 19th century is still in there, too. Right. So, yeah, that's the idea that, you know, he looks at the relative dating, but he doesn't have any absolute dating technique, uh, even though he calls his dating system archaeopetrography says that he invented a new science that helps him date rocks. So, you know, yeah, make it up like you will.
1: we are going to take our final break of the show. And when we come back, we will continue our conversation with Jason.
2: The Archaeology Podcast Network has partnered with T Public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good, promotes archaeology and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's
0: archpodnet.com slash shop.
1: Uh, We're back from our break and we're continuing our conversation with Jason.
0: So here's my question to Jason. And Jason, you know, don't be embarrassed by this. How many languages, (laughs) how many languages? Oh, I was
1: going to ask him that.
0: We got it. We have to know that. How many languages, because I see this in your blog all the time, and you say in a very offhand way, well, I, I translated this. How many <laughs> languages are you um, fluent enough in that you can confidently translate these things? Well, that's a good question, because mostly I'm good with dictionaries. was oh, that um, what it I, is?
3: Well, I um, have a very strong foundation in Latin, which I studied for many years. Okay. And I also studied Spanish uh, in college. And from there, I branched out to learn French and Italian. And all of those romance languages are very closely related. So there's a lot of similarities involved. Sure. So I have a reading knowledge of most romance languages. And I picked up a smattering of Greek and German. And I can follow along with a good number of languages. I'm only confident in translating uh, the romance languages So I guess that means, let's see, we have Latin, French, Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. I can do all of those pretty well. I can, with some help from a dictionary, I can do a little bit of German, as long as it's on the simple side Some German in the past. So I think that's pretty much the major ones that I do. Okay, there you
0: go. (laughs) Well, I I will guarantee you, I'll guarantee you that's more than... Some of the, the, the fringe writers are actually doing uh, – they're not translating this stuff. They're relying on somebody else's translation. That's the point I brought up when we were talking to Andy, that, it, for example, Nostradamus' Quatrains, most people yeah. who I hear talking about that are – they're looking at translations in English and assuming that those are all accurate and that the words in an archaic French actually mean what they are presented to mean in English, it was James Randi in his book The Mask of Nostradamus went back to the original French and translated it and found error after error after error, error. and these uh, mysteriously accurate predictions by (laughs) Nostradamus disappeared when you looked at what the words actually meant in the original language. And I think, Jason, you're doing the same thing in in so of these cases. Nostradamus is
3: particularly thorny because it isn't all French. He mixed in all sorts of Latin and Italian and other uh, words, and it is a huge mess trying to read well, any of that. I'm sure. Uh, so, but and, uh, yeah, one of the things that I try to do is to go back as far as close as I can to the primary source in order to try to get a reading of what these texts say. And in a lot of cases, you know, the fringe writers, they're not they're not even working from you know, uh, professional or scholarly translation. They're just translating a translation of a translation in many cases. Right. So you have this whole game of telephone. It, in uh, one case, it, the English version of um, Peter Colossimo's Not of This World, an early ancient astronaut book from the 1960s, the translator for the English publisher translated back into English Colossimo's. Italian translation of <laughs> what I think was a fin of the translation of H.P. Lovecraft's original story. So, oh, wow. when you look at it. I put them side by side: the original and what it turned oh. out in the book. It is just completely ridiculous, right. and a lot of. And one of the things that I found is that a lot of the English versions of the European ancient astronaut books, uh, *Chariots of the Gods*, and you know Peter Colosimo and Robert Shapiro and uh, Paul Bergier, the English translators were doing this really on the cheap. They didn't even go back to the English when there were English versions English versions that were translated into the European languages in the first place. They just retranslated everything. Right. So the versions that we have here in America are even more screwed up than the versions in the original language publication in Europe. Right. So, you know, they at least have only one or two removes and we're yet another remove from the original. Oh, God.
1: Well, it's easier to get things to say what you want them to say if you can translate them badly.
0: (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Jason, I'm going to put you on the spot because whenever people ask me about Von Doniken, they ask me the same question and I never know how to answer it. So let's see how you answer it. Does Von Doniken, does he really believe this stuff or has all this been a brilliant marketing plan to sell a lot of books?
3: That is a great question that I wish I had an answer to. You know, but that's based on the things that he said, you could support either version uh as he says... All sorts of things all all the time, and he, he tends to contradict himself a lot. Right. I think that he probably started off being interested in the UFO and the alien craze in the 1960s. So I think that there was, at least initially, some level of belief that he had. He chose that topic and not, say talking to your plants or pet rocks or whatever right. other fads were going on. I'm not sure that he believes it today is he seems to be saying pretty much whatever he wants Whatever he thinks people want him to say, uh-huh. I find that when you watch one interview after another, even over the last c- couple of years, he tends to reverse himself all the time on whether X, Y, or Z really is aliens. The Nazca lines. He, you know, right. sometimes he says yes they are, sometimes no they're not. So I'm really not sure. But if I had to guess, I would say he might have started out thinking there was something to it, uh-huh. but now probably is playing a part. Uh, That's that's actually almost sad in a way.
0: Well,
1: you see the disillusionment of a man who can't get out of the trap that he set for himself now.
0: Jason and I, Jason did a a wonderful job of this. Uh, We participated in a recent documentary about ancient aliens on a show called Codes and Conspiracies, and Jason was absolutely brilliant in this, and they interviewed Von Donneken, uh, because Eric Von Donneken was interviewed in a limousine, because he's too busy (laughs) to sit down and actually be interviewed, but to be perfectly honest, I felt sorry for him in the following sense, that he kept having to walk back from so many of the claims he has traditionally made about the Nazca Lines and about a number of other things. Well, yes, of course, I know that's not true anymore. But it was it was almost pathetic, I'm sorry to say. But, but he has walked back on so many of these things. One of the things I want to bring up, though, is what I will get from people sometimes, Jason, is that, well, but he's harmless. He means well. Um, would you care to talk a little bit about the racism inherent in von Vondonikin's books. And these, this is not stuff that, well, you have to be really looking for it. It's really flat out racist stuff.
3: Well, to go back to your earlier point about von Vondonikin being sad and somewhat pathetic, I think the final image of that uh, documentary in which they talked about, von Vondonikin giving Thursday lectures to tourists at his failed theme park that became a <laughs> children's amusement park, probably says about Everything that you need to know about astronaut theory today. But I know that um, a fringe author that uh, I spoke with once said that uh, one of the reasons that he writes about this isn't necessarily that he thinks it's all true, but that you really can't make money writing the truth, because that's not what people want. And if you want to get paid to travel around the world and visit ancient sites and talk about the things you're interested in, you have to give them something that they want. True story. But when it comes to, that too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. when it comes to the idea of racism in ancient astronaut literature, you know, there's a lot of the general idea space aliens are, Right. you know, they're helping all of these Primitive peoples who mostly happen to have brown skin to do things that, you know, when white people do, then we say, oh, well, that's just normal. Right. But in Eric Von Doniken's book, Signs of the Gods, he goes way beyond that sort of general level of. Neo-colonialism. Right. And he actually talks about whether the aliens purposely made humans in different races. And he talks about how black people resemble monkeys. So they must have been the first experiment. And you know, these black people, they live in the jungle and they play on tom-toms and they're so musical, he says. And the aliens, he concludes, must have thought that the blacks were a failed race. So they created Asians and white people to replace them as the superior and chosen people. And he goes on to say that he feels that based on the Bible's claim that the Jews are the chosen people, that space aliens selected the white race as their chosen race because – Jews are part of the white race, as he defines it, Uh the European race, because they're all descended from the same descent, the same son of Noah. This is... You know, right. getting into that quasi-biblical stuff. Sure, but he says so. He says that God chose the white race as the superior race, and the blacks are a failure. And he phrases all of this as questions, of course. Right. And then, um, when he was called on the racist views um, at one point or another, and he actually says in the book, um, in a, a book, uh, Twilight of the Gods, I think it was. It might have been the one after that. Uh, He says, well, they accuse me of being a racist. I'm not a racist. Yeah. I took this right. God says this. So that's it was frankly shocking for me to to see in that book just how blatantly he was talking about how, well, the aliens chose white people and the black people are a failure. So like. Wow, I can't believe you actually wrote that, much less the publishers publish it, and they're still publishing it today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, It had this incredibly 18th or 19th century racist undercurrent. And here it's being published in the 20th century. And as far as I know, it's still being published. that They haven't changed any of that. And he hasn't walked back from that. He hasn't been he, he, he hasn't responded, really, he's, other than to say, well, he's not the racist. I guess God is, because that's what God said. It's kind of remarkable.
1: Yeah, well, it, it's it's. As I've said before, it's very insidious how it gets. It gets worked into there in a way that the, the statements can sound innocent in the right light, but then when you really focus on them, you realize
3: what is really being said. And- but you, you find that across many different t- kinds of fringe literature. Yes. In Graham Hancock's Fingerprints of the Gods, he talks about, you know, the lost civilization, that the security. Right. Yes. Your race, they one civilization around the world. And, oh yeah, he slips in, I forget, I think. I, think I counted it and it was about 12 times in the book. They're white people. And David Hatcher Childress, he was even more explicit, building on the um moo legends from James Churchward. He not only said that you know white people were, were the master race of the lost civilization, which he put on moo, but that they also kept the brown and black people as slaves. Um, and you find that over and over across these fringe books. That It's always that the white people were in charge and the non-white people were somehow not so good. And amazing that it's repeated so frequently and across so many different types of literature. So that if you become a fan of fringe literature, you get exposed to this simply by repetition so that it becomes mm. almost obvious that, you know, oh, right. Yeah, the superior lost white race. They were ruling the world. And there's no real reason for that other than the fact that in the 19th century, the Victorians assumed that white people were the pinnacle of creation and therefore had to be responsible for all of the achievements of the world. And the people who have followed them and recycle and reuse their material, the way Graham Hancock, for example, recycles a lot of Ignatius Donnelly, who attributed Atlantis to – of people that these people are simply repeating and bringing that Victorian racism forward into the 20th and now the 21st centuries.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely a key point that that certainly during the Victorian era, when the Europeans were encountering uh, even the either living groups of people or certainly the archaeological remains uh, in areas of the world that were not peopled by white folks and seeing tremendous uh, achievements in architecture, in engineering in science, in writing, in agriculture, that it had to be ascribed to some white genius race that had arrived there in the past and had shared civilization with the benighted natives. And I, that was unacceptable Examples in of that is
3: Rhodesia. Right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. The Great Zimbabwe, the Rhodesian government, not only did they attribute Great Zimbabwe to a lost white race, They made it the official policy of their government that that you couldn't say anything other than that. Uh, Rhodesia at the time had a white minority government. And one of the first things that happened when Robert Mugabe overthrew the white minority government was that they reversed all of that and even named the country after Zimbabwe as a great right. achievement of African civilization.
0: Exactly. Right.
1: And that's when this stuff becomes a problem is when it gets internalized by people in power and it becomes a policy that starts to affect people in negative ways. And it, I mean – it doesn't seem like it can happen when you're here, like in America. And I, I think a lot of countries in, in developed Europe where it's like, oh, it's so funny. Ha ha ha. Aliens. Ha ha ha. And you get into some of these other countries that are like, I can use this. I can use this to further my agenda. And they do.
3: Well, you know what happened here once. Andrew Jackson used well, yeah, the with, myth of the mound builders right. to justify the Indian Removal Act, right? right. Because, no. Because I mean, you know they said that the Indians, the lost white race, was eliminated by these violent cannibal Indians. So we have to get rid of them and ship them out to reclaim the country for the lost white people. Right. Exactly.
0: We're, we're only giving back to them what they gave to our white ancestors. <laughs> but no, there, there's. And uh, go ahead, Jason.
3: Oh, no, I was just going to say that there are people who still advocate that today, and they use Dennis Sanford's uh, theory that the uh, Salutrians came to North America from Europe to justify it. There's um, a whole group of people, white supremacists, who use that as the basis – Bringing in all these old mound builder myths and saying that the so-called Beringians, as they call Native Americans, were this super violent primitive race that wiped out a benign and superior white civilization that once ruled America – and that had come over from Europe. Never mind that the Salutrians weren't anything, they, they were anything resembling white, but uh, right. they use this as they came from Europe, <clears throat> they must have been white, they ruled the world, and then these evil Native Americans came, and it's part of this sort of cultural revitalization movement among the racist fringe that these white supremacists are using this to create their ideology and to draw in new members of uh, white supremacist groups. And to be entirely honest, one of the most popular, popular shows on white supremacist discussion boards is Scott Walter's America Unearthed exactly. they Gee, love it because it, <laughs> they love it because it talks about how Europeans came to America before Columbus and you know Europeans white people were ruling the continent in ancient times so it folds into this white supremacist and white pride movement yeah,
0: well, yeah there a lot just... of, a lot of websites devoted to this that that it, that America was white and should be white again.
1: I just read uh, Jason's blog article about um, Robert Thorson, I think his name is, and how he was going on about how the Cherokee tribes were getting onto Wikipedia and editing Scott Waller's, Walter's uh, profile on Wikipedia because they didn't want him saying that there was a connection between the Mayans and uh, the tribes in Georgia. And I'm like, it, it irritates me how Scott Walter just completely ignores the fact that people were here before all of these little
3: fantasies that he created. And
1: he's just completely okay with that.
3: Well, to be completely fair, he has modified his position over the years. Well,
1: I haven't so that gotten more, there yet, so...
3: So that more recently, he's now advocating more about Native Americans and their contributions, though he still believes that Native Americans receive most of their culture from Europe. He talks about how serpent worship was brought from Scotland and about how... Um, Native Americans were pretty much in awe of the Knights Templar who gave them most of their uh, rights and religion. And the Knights Templar, in fact, were sort of these benevolent rulers who not only warned them that the Christians were coming, so flee, flee, but uh, also that the uh, Knights Templar gave the Native Americans special Jesus genes by bringing the secret descendants of Jesus and Mary Magdalene <laughs> to America to keep them safe from Yeah, I've heard that one before too. The Pope killed them all. Killed them all. And so he believes that Native Americans are actually hybrid white people who were impregnated by the Knights Templars Jesus descendants and were used to
0: breed a superior race of Jesus spawn. Yeah. You know, Jason, you can laugh, Jason. But those Knights Templar, they made a hell of a cookie.
3: <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> they did. Scott Walter believes that the Oreo cookie is oh, a secret right. Knights Templar conspiracy, that the symbols on the Oreo aren't just decorations, but are, in fact, secret Knights Templar symbols pointing to Jesus in Jerusalem to symbolize the fact that they know that Jesus didn't get crucified, that he survived the crucifixion, and that his uh, children with Mary Magdalene are the secret rulers of the world. Right. And there are he knows so who many issues with that story. Yeah. Well, he also so thinks issues. that his friend, um, that a friend of his, um, Steve Saint Clair is one of the descendants of Jesus. Ah,
1: yes, because he is a Saint Clair. I, yes. I've,
0: I've read the Da Vinci Code ruler. as well. <laughs> yes, and of course, the rightful ruler of the Americas. Right, right. <laughs> oh. I, I got to tell you, when I read that stuff, uh, uh, um, you know Walter's claims, I thought for sure that he was he was marketing a script for a reboot of the Life of Brian, like Life of Brian Two, the Monty Python movie, because <laughs> it sounded like it was it had to be a parody, but apparently, it's not. I don't know the, just the grail him.
1: stuff's good, yeah. man. I have you. You really got to read up on the grail stuff. It is there are, there are so, so fascinating many people who
3: believe in that.
1: Yeah, it's and it, they make very compelling him. arguments. Yeah, it's not just Walter <laughs> Walter's getting this from other people.
0: <coughs> yeah, it's hey, it's Jason, Jason. Yes, there was there was at least one person on your blog pretty frequently who would constantly criticize you, essentially by saying, "Chill out." It's just a TV show. And I, and I will get that occasionally from people <laughs> who right. say, you got to relax. Why are you getting all worked up about this? It's just a TV show. Well, I, I think that a lot of the stuff we're talking about today, this crazy racism that, that yeah. undercuts, that underpins so much of this. Uh, but how do you respond to that kind of reaction that, oh, relax. Ancient Aliens, uh, America on Earth, just a TV show. It's just for entertainment. How do you respond?
3: The only way you can respond is to tell them how many people don't consider it entertainment and how many people take it very, very seriously. And when you look at what people write and what they talk about on uh, on their blogs and um, elsewhere, you see that there are an enormous number of people who take these fringe claims very seriously so that even if the ancient astronaut theorists don't believe it, even if the television networks think that it's only for entertainment, their audiences don't consider it entertainment. They think that this is a revelation of the truth because it's on TV. If it's on TV, it has to be true.
1: And not just the, it's on TV. It's on channels that build a reputation around providing factual content and then switched it around at the last minute.
0: Hey, well, you know, they call it the history channel, not the bull. Exactly.
1: Uh, Jason, do you have any final thoughts before we sign off on the show?
3: Yes. My final thought would be buy my book. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. We will link to all of your books. Buy all of his books. All the books. Yes, all of the books. That would be very good and help support my blog and my work because, honestly, a lot of people cog and find out things they didn't know and learn about what the television and the books aren't telling them. And I want to be able to keep doing that and to keep providing the resources that the audience needs to find the truth behind some of the weird and wacky claims that they see and hear.
1: You want to tell us just on the air what your blog uh, blog site address is?
3: Yes, you can find my blog at jasoncolovito.com and you can find a listing of all of my books there, along with links to buy them. Um, and I think that. probably to go. JasonColavito.com. There you go.
1: All right. Well, Jason, thank you very much for being on the show. This was a very one of our best episodes. I say that every episode, but it just keeps getting better.
0: Yeah, Jason is great. It really was fantastic. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. and
2: Human evolution makes us not... Thanks for listening to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. You can find links to the items mentioned on the show at our website at www.archpodnet.com slash Like and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Be sure to share this episode with your friends on social media. Follow Sarah's Fantasies blog at www.archiefantasies.com. You'll also find the show on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, also at Fantasies. Music was provided by ArchaeoSoup at Archaeosoup Productions. Thanks again for listening. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective.
3: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the
1: web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
2: See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it?